Education enrollment is a really good metric for opportunity for life aggression and access to and the take up of high quality education is probably the single most important factor determining career progression, wage growth, broader life chances such as health and, and well-being and so on. And, and so we really see this as a key measure of economic opportunity. And when we look at education and the kind of gaps that we see north and south, they really favour the republic. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery and my guests today are Dr Seamus McGuinness, who's Research Professor at the Economic and Social Research Institute in Dublin, and Dr Adele Bergen, Associate Research Professor at the ESRI. And they're the joint authors of an article called Who is Better Off? Measuring Differences in Living Standards, Opportunities and Quality of Life on the island of Ireland. And it's a quite fascinating article uh, and it covers many, many topics which we'll try to discuss uh, over the next um, number of, uh, of minutes. So first of all, maybe I can kick off with you, Adele. Um, would you like to um, give us a quick overview of, of the work and how you went about it? Sure, thanks Rory. Um, so I suppose that the background context here is that there's been uh, increasing in attention on north-south issues following the, the outcome of the Brexit referendum um, other factors like the establishment of the Shared Island Initiative and um, there's also the issue of possible constitutional change. However, within that kind of uh, background context, very little is known about how Northern Ireland and the Republic actually compare across a number of areas and what might be driving any differences between the two jurisdictions. Essentially, there's not a lot of comparative research. So in, in our paper, we set out to comprehensively explore differences in living standards across a wide range of dimensions. So we look at the more traditionally used economic measures, but we also examine opportunities for, for life progression and general well-being, I suppose, in an, in an attempt to build a more complete picture. So we exploit a, a range of data sets in, in order to compare all relevant indicators that, that are currently available for both Northern Ireland and the Republic. And our, our main finding is that across all the metrics and um, indicators that we examine, differences in living standards generally favour the Republic. So I suppose our, our paper makes a contribution to the developing the, the evidence base that's necessary for an informed discussion on North-South issues. I think this is especially important if we're talking about the area of possible future constitutional change, which, as we know, is, is a very complex and, and a very contentious issue. And it, there's a real need for an evidence-based uh, approach to any debate in that space. No, thank you, Adele. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, maybe you might say a little bit about the work on or the aspects which have to do with living standards specifically and you know, the, the nature of the gap that you've identified between standards north and south. Uh, and then perhaps in layman's terms, you might say a little bit about how you actually calculated this and are there other ways of, of going about it? Sure. So standard of living measures generally focus on income or output. One reliable measure of, of living standards is based on household disposable income. So this is after tax and welfare income, essentially the, the money you have in your back pocket. And when you're comparing this across jurisdictions, you also have to take account of, of differences in prices, 
So it, essentially, you need to adjust for, for different costs of, of buying similar goods and services in, in different jurisdictions. So using this measure of household disposable income, we find that it's around 12% higher in the Republic compared to Northern Ireland. And so this measure indicates that there is a, a sizable gap in living standards between the Republic and Northern Ireland that favours the Republic. So that's the main measure we use, and, and we focus very much on this. There are other commonly used measures, but we know that they're heavily distorted for the Republic. So, for example, internationally, GDP per capita is, is probably the most widely used measure for comparing living standards across countries. But we know that for the Republic, GDP is heavily distorted by globalization effects. And so movements in, in GDP in the Republic are increasingly disconnected from actual trends in living standards. So rather than using GDP, we could use GNI star, which is a, a new measure that adjusts for these sort of globalization effects and makes it a more appropriate measure to compare against Northern Ireland GDP. But even using this measure, GNI star per capita for the Republic, comparing that against GDP in Northern Ireland, again, we see a, a large gap, um, actually a very large gap of around 51% between the Republic and Northern Ireland. And again, this gap favours the Republic. I suppose another measure that's been out there that's been used actually in, in comparisons between the Republic and Northern Ireland is one by uh, John Fitzgerald and Edgar Morganroth. And they use a measure that's not based on income, but it's rather it's, it's based on spending. So they look at public and uh, private consumption per capita. And using this metric, they, they find something different. And so they find that public and private consumption per capita was around 20% lower in the Republic than in Northern Ireland in 2012. However, a more recent update of their work found that this gap still favoured Northern Ireland, but that the gap had actually fallen substantially to uh, around 4% in, in 2016. So although the measure they, they use is, tells a, a different story, essentially the gap that they find is favouring Northern Ireland, this gap seems to be reducing a lot over time. We don't really know what explains the, the, the fall in the gap that they found, but, but it could be related to savings. So household uh, consumption is a measure of spending, it's not, not a measure of income. And so, you know, households can have higher consumption if they have a lower savings rate and, and vice versa. But we, we can't check that out because we don't have... Um, separate savings data for, for, for Northern Ireland. So I suppose these are the main measures of, of living standards. They don't tell an entirely consistent story. And that's one of the reasons why we look at a range of other measures related to economic opportunity and, and, and life expectancy and, and so on. So I suppose of, of the measures of living standards that I've, I've just talked about, the, the one we prefer is the one that's based on, on household disposable income as um, it's not subject to the drawbacks of other conventional metrics that are used uh, to assess living standards. Well, thank you very much, Adele. That's a very uh, clear and, and, and comprehensive explanation. And I suppose it's interesting that even the alternative measure that you talk about, which John Fitzgerald and Edgar Morganoth used, showed a, a considerable change between 2012 and 2016. And now we're five years further on. Um, and I suppose... It'll be very interesting, especially post-pandemic, I suppose, to see how that uh, particular trend has has gone. Maybe I can turn to you, Seamus. I mean, obviously, 
Adele was very much talking about sort of averages per per, per household. Uh, but of course, different people, I suppose, in society, depending on their jobs and their where they live and so on, have very different experiences. So from the point of view of the distribution of income, you know, across society, north and south, and what did your research show? Uh, yes, so there, there are these issues around when we know average income, we don't know how it's distributed. And we can see countries that have very high levels of per capita income, but also very high levels of, of poverty. So we need to look at how income is distributed to see actually how, how equal is the society and how evenly is the wealth uh, actually spread. So one of the key measures in this area is to look at poverty risk. So this is usually taken as the proportion of individuals who live in households where the income level is below 60% of the national average. So that was one of the key indicators uh, that we looked at in the paper. And what we saw is that um, the tax and welfare system in the Republic is, is very effective at taking money from high income uh, households and redistributing that to, to lower income households and therefore mitigating poverty risk. So before um, the, we take account of, of how the tax and, and, and transfer system works, actually poverty risk, the proportion of individuals and households who uh, are below that 60% threshold is slightly higher in the Republic. But after the uh, tax and welfare system sort of does its thing, that situation uh, changes drastically. So uh, the data that I have shows that after taxes and, and transfers, the proportion of individuals in the Republic who live in households who are at risk of poverty is 16%, and that compares to just under 4, 24% uh, in Northern Ireland. So what we see, it looks as if we have a much more progressive tax and, and transfer system uh, in the Republic. And that's really not surprising when we look at the history of, of sort of taxation and welfare across both jurisdictions. So in the Republic, even during, and irrespective of the political party that was in power, uh, if you remember back to the financial crisis around 2010, 2012, there were drastic fiscal measures taken. Uh, but all along that process, care was taken to ensure that as much as possible, low-income households were protected against those changes as much as possible. So welfare rates were not cut as much as uh, as other, say, public sector pay and, and other areas. So it has been a consistent priority within the Republic to ensure that, that there is equitable tax and, and welfare policies. Uh, and then when you contrast that uh, to what the system is in Northern Ireland, the taxation policy there is generally run uh, through Westminster. And what we've seen over the last 10 years, particularly under the current uh, Conservative administration from 2010 on, has been a series of, of policy initiatives, we would we'll say, that has drawn uh, a lot of criticism in terms of the impact on low-income households. So we're, we're talking about the rollout of universal credit, for example, the replacement of disability living allowance with PIP, uh, the bedroom tax. So I think uh, when we look at the results that we see uh, and we see that there is this distributive impact that uh, really is more protective of low-income households in the Republic, it's probably not surprising uh, given um, the way that we see sort of tax and welfare policies operate across both jurisdictions. Well, that's very interesting. And again, as you say, it's it's also you know, reflects the fact very probably that you know policy is run from Dublin uh, in this area and, and not so much from from Belfast but as Adele mentioned earlier I mean you've gone well beyond the question of of sort of living standards measured in terms of, of household income or spending and one of the areas you've looked at is health and of course this is you know hugely politically 
uh, important in many ways in the debate about the future of the island. And the Northern Ireland Life and Times attitude survey showed, I think, that 97% of people in Northern Ireland right across the community uh, attach either a great value or some value to the NHS as a, a benefit of being in the United Kingdom. Um, but your findings perhaps, you know, don't paint so so clear a picture. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I live in, in the North, for full disclosure, uh, and there generally has been a perception uh, that the NHS is an international gold standard um, and that access to the NHS is one of the advantages of maintaining the current constitutional uh, status quo. But I think that our research, and particularly on a previous, our previous paper in the Cambridge Journal of Economics also um, pointed towards this, is that there has been a sea change in that uh, the relative positions of the two healthcare systems, because it, traditionally the NHS was seen as much, much superior uh, to the HSE. That definitely has changed radically. Uh, and there has been substantial convergence between the two systems. And I think that is a result of basically two trends. Again, you have uh, had a lot of uh, the, the impact of austerity budgets, again, coming from Westminster and filtering to, through to the Northern Ireland NHS through the Barnett formula consistently from 2010 to 2019. And that has been, you know, uh, really constricting services in the North. Uh, and at the same time, we've seen an increase in spending on health uh, within the Republic. And per capita spending on health in the Republic is, is, is around uh, over 25% higher than, than the UK average. We don't know what the figure is for the um, for the for Northern Ireland specifically. Whether or not we're getting good money, value for that money is is another question. But that differences in funding has definitely uh, resulted in some convergence, and we can see that in terms of we look at the key metrics in our paper around. You know, if we look at the active physicians rate and the hospital bed rate across both jurisdictions. They're broadly very similar. However, important differences obviously still do exist uh, between both systems. So in particular, we simply say, well, there's access to free GP care in Northern Ireland, whereas people and prescriptions costs are, are zero, whereas people in the Republic would have to pay these upfront charges. There are a couple of things to bear in mind in, that, in terms of that. Uh, firstly, around 45% in the Republic, people in the Republic don't pay to see a GP because they either have a health card or a GP card. And access in the Republic to a GP is pretty um, pretty immediate. I know this through through personal experience. There are substantial waiting times to see a GP in Northern Ireland, despite this uh, free model. Um, so the most recent data that we have is that 27% uh, of patients in Northern Ireland will wait at least a week uh, to see a GP, and some uh, significant proportions a lot longer than that. So what you're seeing in Northern Ireland is actually uh, you know private sector GP clinics popping up where people now can circumvent these, these waiting lists in order to access services immediately. Uh, and it is that brings me to another point that we raise in our research is that when you talk about the NHS, there's, there's actually four uh, NHSs. There's an NHS in England, Scotland, Wales, and one in Northern Ireland. And unfortunately, uh, the NHS in Northern Ireland is a particularly poor performer within that sort of UK, uh, GB regional context. For example, a person in, in Northern Ireland would wait, is at least 48 times as likely than a person in Wales to wait more than a year for care. And that's despite the fact that Wales is the, the next worst performing region of the UK. Another um, statistic, in 2018, the outpatient waiting list in Northern Ireland was 26 times that of England. 
but England has 30 times the population of Northern Ireland. So, you know, when we talk about the NHS, you have to recognise that there are substantial differences and, and that Northern Ireland, really, the health service in the, in the North is, is really under a lot of strain and waiting lists are very, very substantial and access to primary services um, is, is very difficult. That's not to say that those waiting lists don't exist in the Republic because they, they certainly do. We need to know exactly how they compare with each other and there's work ongoing with the Shared Island Unit that will shed some light on this. But I suppose stepping back from this, we need to think, well, actually, both health systems have major problems, as I said, with waiting lists. Uh, the OECD also tells us that if you have an acute bed occupancy rate of over 90%, that's dangerous, because it means that your, your health system can't respond to shocks in, in, in demand, such as like a flu epidemic or a global pandemic, as we've just seen. It, it tells us that there is an inability to move uh, individuals from the hospital to the social care, to the community setting. So social care is, is a problem. So I think we really need to take a step back and say, you know, and recognise that, that the NHS isn't the gold standard anymore. There are problems in both jurisdictions. And we need to say, ask, well, irrespective of the constitutional position, surely we can do better for all our citizens uh, in in both jurisdictions, we have to ask the question, is it sensible to have two health services on an island of this size? Because obviously that brings about problems in terms of economies of scale and duplication. So I think, you know, the, the research really puts some reality in terms of, of, of where we are in terms of health and moves that away from the rhetoric. And I think that leaves open uh, some important policy questions that, that really we can all, that should be addressed moving forward that benefits everyone. No, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that Um Seamus, and in fact, I mean, the the previous podcast in this series was specifically devoted to health um, systems north and south and cooperation. And you know, you're right, certainly, and the other research has been published as well. And certainly, what's quite striking to me as an onlooker is that in fact neither system is a particularly good performer uh, by international standards, despite the fact that their structures are somewhat considerably different. Um, another area, obviously, which is really important to people in their everyday lives um, is education. And in Northern Ireland, there's been a particular uh, focus, I suppose, on the considerable difficulties uh, experienced above all, perhaps, by young, younger Protestant boys. And we've seen maybe some of the implications of, of that. But overall, Adele, my reading of your research uh, is that, y- you know, the, the differences between North and South in terms of outcomes are, certainly from school at least, and overall, are are quite stark. Um, yes, yes, they are. Again, uh, when, when we look at education and, and the kind of gaps that we see in North and South, again, they, they really favour the, the Republic. So one of the things that we, we, we look at are education enrolment rates across the life cycle. That covers everything from uh, early years programs right the way through to lifelong learning. And I suppose education enrollment is, is a really good metric for opportunities for life progression, you know, where the opportunities for our young people for the future. And access to and, and the take up of high quality education is probably the single most important factor determining career progression, wage growth. Broader, broader life chances, which is health and, and well-being, and, and and so on, and and so we really see this as a key measure of economic opportunity. And I suppose one of the important uh, economic points here is that individuals with lower levels of educational attainment 
tend to earn uh, lower wages. So one of the things we do in the paper is we look at education enrollment rates um, across all ages. And essentially what we find is that they're, they're lower across all ages in, in Northern Ireland compared to the Republic. So for example, the, the rate of young people, so those age 15 to 19, that are enrolled in post-compulsory programmes is, is 90, 93% in the Republic compared to, to just 74% in Northern Ireland. And th- this difference seems to reflect the relative success of the system in, in the Republic in terms of keeping students engaged between junior and leaving cert, and which seems to be much more uh, effective relative to the, the sort of the GCSE to A-level progression rates that prevail in, in, in Northern Ireland. But even just moving on from um, looking at, at slightly older students, that the rate of enrollment among those aged 20 to 29 in, in the Republic is almost double that in, in Northern Ireland. So again, this indicates much higher levels of participation in, in third level education. And, you know, even for those over the age of 30, which I suppose looking at their education participation, this really reflects, I suppose, the, the opportunities for lifelong learning. And they're also substantially higher in, in the Republic relative to Northern Ireland. So overall, it's unclear whether the difference in sort of these participation or, or enrollment rates, whether it's driven by differences in the access to education provision or whether it's the, the take up of education or both. Another indicator that, that we looked at in the paper is around the rate of early school leaving. Um, so this is measured as a proportion of those aged 18 to 24 who, who haven't finished no more than lower secondary education and they're not involved in, in further education or training. And according to OECD data, the the rate of early school leaving in in Northern Ireland is almost twice that of the Republic. So I think in in 2018, 9.4% of young people in Northern Ireland were classified as early school leavers compared to just 5% in the Republic. And overall, we're not not quite sure what explains this. Um, It could be that there are more pathways for for young people in the Republic to access higher levels of education through through the further education and and training sector. And our our, our analysis also indicates that that early school leaving is much more heavily concentrated in Northern Ireland amongst males and those with working class backgrounds uh, compared to to what we find in the Republic. So it was this, this finding suggests that the education system in Northern Ireland is relatively less effective as a a vehicle for social inclusion among students from working class backgrounds and and, and for males. So I suppose overall what we find in education is that the opportunities for individual progression and or the take up of these opportunities through education provision appear to be more, more restricted in Northern Ireland compared to the Republic. Thank you very much Adele. No I mean those again are 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 really quite dramatic um statistics, and again I suppose I mean that there are people in Northern Ireland who who would perhaps you know that those at the top of the system if you like, who perform strongly at A level, um in sort of the what would be regarded as the best schools, um, what would have been grammar schools I suppose you know may perform well but there's a very long tail after that um so. And to put it crudely, I mean, you know, probably if you're a middle class girl in in Northern Ireland, you're saying maybe your situation is not that different from your southern counterparts, but it's rather different elsewhere. Of course, an absolutely fundamental and basic measure of quality of life, if you like, is in fact the length of life um, is longevity. 
and life expectancy. Uh, and there too, I must say, I found your, your findings really interesting, Adele. Yeah, so I think when we talk about life expectancy, there's a really broad range of factors, including income, education, employment opportunities, well-being, access to healthcare services, all the things that we've, we've just been talking about. All of these things together will generally determine life expectancy in a region. So as such, one of the points that Seamus and I make is that differences in life expectancy then across countries um, can be interpreted as a as a broad kind of cumulative measure of, of differences in general welfare and, and living standards between jurisdictions. So in 2018, life expectancy at birth in the Republic exceeded that um, of Northern Ireland by um, around 1.4 years. This is a, a sizable gap, again, in favour of the Republic. And it's actually kind of interesting to, to look at this metric over time. So I think uh, before 2005, life expectancy in, in the North exceeded that in the Republic. Although at the time, the, the, the rate in the Republic was converging up towards the Northern Ireland rate. In the years that followed, we saw continued strong improvements in life expectancy in, in the Republic, which meant that it surpassed the, the, the rate in Northern Ireland. And what we've seen in more recent years is that the gap between the two regions has been increasing. So I suppose overall, as I kind of mentioned, changes in life expectancy reflect a complex interplay of social, economic, institutional, and then health factors. And it's very hard to untangle the role of each of these in, in determining you know, changes in, in life expectancy. So even though we can't say exactly what is driving the differences, we feel that it's a really good measure of overall differences in general welfare and living standards across countries. And I think it tells a, a story that is very consistent with um, with all of the other measures and, and metrics that we examined. No, exactly. It's a very, I mean, it's a very easily understandable metric as, as well, as you say, and itself affected by a whole range of factors. Turning to you, Seamus, I mean, again, the span of the work is very broad and there are other things you touch on, which it's not really possible to talk about today. Comparative experiences of crime, the question of civic engagement and electoral turnout, the environment. I was interested, of course, though, to see that in terms of sort of self-assessed life satisfaction, um, there was pretty well, pretty well even um, between the two uh, jurisdictions, although both were a little bit lower, I noticed, um, than Austria and the figures you, you chose. Looking at this work and this, this paper as a springboard for future work, what areas do you think require the most examination and, and scrutiny um, and further research indeed as we go forward? That's a very good question, uh, Rory. I think there's two aspects to this. There is the, the research that really will inform policy where there is clear mutual benefits to further cooperation, north-south cooperation and the development of, of the all-Ireland economy. And then there is the second question around, there is now, we, we recognise the, the whole debate around constitutional change has, has evolved. Uh, and what are the sets of information that we would need uh, to ensure that that it does not follow a disastrous route, uh, such as was the case, quite evidently with Brexit. Um, so in terms of the first set of research metrics that we need to know, they're irrespective of the constitutional framework in question. There are clear benefits uh, to increased cooperation across a range of areas. We've spoken about health, but we could also look at questions around uh, you know, infrastructural development, a more joined up approach uh, to industrial policy, for instance. So 
I think, you know, that really we need to identify the areas where there is obvious mutual gains from increased cooperation uh, and start figuring out exactly how both uh, jurisdictions operate within those particular areas and from a policy perspective, how can we uh, cooperate in a way that, that benefits everyone? So, as I said, the areas of health, um, infrastructural uh, development, uh, industrial policy, particularly, p- potentially education and training, particularly within the tertiary and post-secondary areas. These are all areas that we, we need to be looking at uh, in terms of increased cooperation. And I think the shared I view that is is is, um, is starting to address some of those questions and look at some of those areas. Then the other question is around constitutional change, and, and there is a recognition, I think, within the Ireland's framework and documentation that this is, you know, one of the, the motivating factors around uh, the initiative in the first place. That, right, that this conversation, these conversations, are are being uh, are taking place. Uh, so Adele and I began working on this research for our first paper, the political economy of Northern Ireland border poll. Because we were quite frankly alarmed uh, by the fact that clearly, uh, when we looked at polling and, and information and all of the metrics, that had changed substantially as a result of Brexit. So, if you like, the perceived uh, likelihood of of a border poll had seems to have increased, uh, at least if we measure it in terms of the amount that's been discussed uh, over recent years. But yet, there was no planning in place to to uh, allow that to happen. Uh, and then when we looked at the Brexit referendum, we said, well, this is what happens if you allow major constitutional referendums to take place in an evidence vacuum, people can stand up, say whatever they like, and there is no capacity to fact check any of what they say. And we now know subsequent to the Brexit referendum that a lot of the things that were claimed were just utter nonsense. And, and frankly, you know, a lot of them were, were outright lies. So that's what we need to uh that's the second question, what is the information that we need to ensure that that doesn't happen if and when a border poll is called in Ireland? And we, we also have to look at the fact that the Good Friday Agreement, uh, to which both governments are, are co-signatories, does state that this will take place on the basis of a 50 plus one referendum. I know lots of people don't like that, but that's what is going to happen. Uh, and I think we need to look then uh, to answer that question of, uh, as to what the Scottish government do in the run-up to the NDRF in, in 2014. And, and again, uh, they have produced a very substantive document, um, Scotland's Future, that outlined what an, an independent Scotland would look like across a range of areas in terms of you know domestic policy, monetary policy, fiscal policy, the welfare system. Uh, and, and really, that's that's the second area that, where that work needs to be done. And I think uh, to, to, to address that question in terms of what needs to be done, you know, I think you need to look at the Scotland's Future uh, document and that approach as a, as a minimum benchmark uh, for the type of preparation that needs to be put in place or information that needs to be put in place in the run-up to any border poll. So, so no matter what way, you, if you look at the two referendums, you contrast the um, the Brexit referendum and the India referendum, certainly the extent to which people could make spurious uh, and unsubstantiated claims in the Scottish case uh, was much more limited than was the case uh, with Brexit. Well, of course, a significant difference, I suppose, can be um, can be established between you know those things which can be demonstrated uh, to be true uh, at the present moment, and of course, perhaps you know what might happen in the future under various conditions, which is, is more speculative. But I think you've you've done a tremendous service in actually highlighting a whole range of of issues as they stand now, 
And it strikes me indeed that it's rather unfortunate, again, leaving the constitutional issue to one side, that the domination of much of Northern Ireland politics by the constitutional question, identity questions and so on, symbolic issues, you know, in a way has obscured the fact, you know, the very things we've talked about would provide a a real agenda for government and public policy in in Northern Ireland, irrespective of uh, what might happen. And of course, this is not to say that the South is perfect, far, far from it. So just before we finish, well, thank you, Seamus, just... um, Checking with you, Adele, is there any final point you'd like to make or have you said it all between you? Um, yeah, I, I think we have said it all. I would just reiterate the point that Seamus made that, you know, the area of talking about constitutional change, it is a very complex and a very contentious issue. And there is a real need for an evidence-based approach to that. And, you know, for Seamus and myself, we use international data sources from the OECD, from Eurostat, from the Central Statistics Office, NISRA in Northern Ireland. Um, and we were at pains to kind of report those sources and any adjustments made all that sort of stuff. And we've been really careful about making sure any of the work we do go through rigorous peer review. And, you know, we welcome people commenting on the research or pointing out, you know, areas for future development or where we could expand it. And I think that has to be the way forward. So in that sense, I think that, you know, we're really happy to be involved in the IRONS project because, you know, debate needs to be informed using facts and data rather than anecdotes. Well, certainly in Ireland, we have not had enough of experts. Um, so the more experts, the, the better. Uh, Seamus McGuinness and Adele Bergen, thank you very much indeed for sharing your time with me this morning. And there will be another Ireland's podcast coming out on the first Thursday of next month. Aaron's it's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent, and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional, and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast.